Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Two big questions today. You're in a difficult relationship. Everything is going sideways. It's not happy making for anybody, including the children. How do you decide to get a divorce? What do you do after you get a divorce? What happens if you marry again and get a divorce? And then the second half of the show, we're going to talk about what is the effect, what is the trauma on children when divorce occurs. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Larry Waldman. Stay tuned. This is going to be dynamite for you. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast, help for toxic relationships. If you've been here before, I'm glad you found value and returned. And if you're new, I'm so delighted that you found us. There's so many pieces of the puzzle when you're in a toxic relationship. And one of the big questions that comes up so frequently, because I have clients all over the world, so they ask me from every corner of the world, what is the time to leave when there are children involved? Is there a good time? Is there a better time? Is there a never time? We're going to talk about that, but we're going to start by talking about marriage, relationship, and potential divorce. Welcome to the program. Dr. Larry, how are you? Good. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, too. This is Dr. Larry Waldman, and he is recently semi-retired school psychologist and a licensed clinical forensic psychologist, and he lives in the heat of, Houston, of Phoenix, Arizona. And, you know, I'm here in San Diego, and we all know that people migrate over from Phoenix when they need a breath of fresh air in the summer. <laughs> so he's conducted a highly successful private practice for 45 years, working with children, teens, and parents, couples, and adults in a solution-focused manner. He's also consulted with family, personal injury, immigration, and estate planning attorneys. And you know what he's, he's put here that I think is very interesting, and Larry, we can talk about this, is about half of U.S. marriages fail, and most of them involve children. One-fourth of the children of divorce are traumatized by the continual acrimony between their parents. And you, as an experienced clinical forensic psychologist, you just published a book called Love Your Children More Than You Hate Your Ex. Great title. Thank you. It's so important for us to know how to do that. So let's start with the marriage questions. Okay, things are going sideways. Acrimony is building up. People don't want to come home. People are getting fearful. People are getting anxious. If that's happening, instead of going to the first thought of divorce, what would be a better course of action? Well, of course, 
<clears throat> that's really important because I think too often people just throw in the towel pretty quickly um, or they sort of give up, if you will, and maybe just go through the motions. Uh, in, in either case, uh, it's not going to be successful. Uh, you have to address the issues. Perhaps uh, if you can sit down and calmly uh, discuss some of your concerns, maybe there can be some progress. In fact, uh, in the book, I, I talk about how to, how to fight fair, uh, if you will. And, and I give some ideas about how some of those issues can be dealt with, with without uh, some of the issues that often occur when, when couples argue. And of course, it just becomes a nightmare. Uh, if that's uh, not going to work, then it's probably time to see a counselor. Well, I certainly agree with that. And I would say that when you recognize that your troubles are larger than your ability to contain them, it's a good idea to get help. And for two big reasons. First of all, you deserve to find out what's possible in your relationship. Get some more communication skills, some conflict management skills, maybe learn to to look at deeper issues for yourself. But secondly, remember that your children are witnessing the relationship. So at every moment, they're learning how to be a man or a woman or how to be in relationship by watching and listening to you. And that is a big question. Do you want them to learn to fight all the time or to make sarcastic remarks or to avoid each other or be masters of the silent treatment? Well, I hope not. So getting some help is a very important thing to do. And strong people who care about themselves and their children get help. People who don't feel that they can engage in getting help because what if it's their fault? They don't get help and they will have multiple divorces. So in that situation, what do you think are good reasons? If they've done some work, what do you think are good reasons for them actually divorcing? Well, there's a couple. Uh, first, as you've already suggested, if the problem keeps happening and there doesn't seem to be an end, whatever the problem might be, assuming, of course, it's something substantial, uh, that's one clue uh, if it's going to be a never-ending thing, uh, like mismanagement of money, extramarital affairs, uh, uh, abuse, of course, verbal or worse, uh, and, and so on. Uh, <clears throat> That's for sure. Uh, obviously, uh, if, uh, uh, that you, if it's happening constantly in front of the kids, uh, then, then it's bigger than the two of you. And now, and now the kids are, are involved. Um, so when, when you see uh, these kinds of things happening and there doesn't appear to be an end, regardless of what you tried to do, even though you've been through some counseling and so forth, uh, it's probably time to start uh, thinking about ending it. Well, the divorce statistics these days are something like 48.6%. So we've, we've gone a little bit underneath the 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Yay. But that's a high number still, yes. a very high number. Why do you think it's so prevalent? Well, <clears throat> as again, I, I touch on the book, I, I think we do a very poor job of forming our relationships. I, I can't tell you how many couples I've seen, and I've seen uh, probably a thousand in, in my time, I did this for 45 years, uh, where the story was pretty much the same. Um, we met at a bar or a party, 
Uh, we slept together the first night and we moved in together within two months. So moving too quickly. Absolutely. Because what happens then, I, I'm firmly convinced, is we get emotionally connected, not to mention sexually. So we're emotionally intertwined, but we really haven't had a chance to vet the important things like values, morals, similar interests, ability to communicate, a willingness to compromise, and things like that that really are important if a long if if a long-term marriage is going to be sustained. Yeah, absolutely. And if you happen to be with a hijackal, which is my term for relentlessly difficult toxic people, sure. if you happen to be with a hijackal, they're putting on a show for you. They are trying to read you. They are trying to be everything you ever wanted. And they have limited patience for putting on that show. So if you jump in quickly, I call it the gotcha factor. And they want to get you. They want you to move in with them. They want you to marry them. They want to have children with you. They want to do something quickly to say, oh, I know I just met you, but I love you and I'm going to marry you. To engage you in that emotional whirlwind so that you don't engage your brain, you know, and at that point, you probably have your rose-colored glasses on and these things are eluding you, right? <laughs> because when you have your rose-colored glasses on, you can't see red flags very much and you don't want to look for them because, oh, I've just found the most perfect person in the whole world. And so we rush to have the fairy tale. When people ask me, and they rarely ask, and I wish they'd ask more often, but when they ask, well, how long should we date before we make a commitment to each other? I always say one trip around the sun. One whole year, because in that time you will have difficulties, you will have sadness, you will have joys, you will have successes, you will have had experiences together, and you will have debriefed them, and then you will know the things that you're talking about. Right, Larry? Absolutely. That, that gives you the time to, as I say, vet your partner. You, you'll run across some hard times and so on. And those are the things, of course, you want to consider. Um, how does the person manage their money? Uh, how do they manage conflict? How do they manage disappointment? Uh, how willing are they to compromise? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things, I believe, are the real markers of, of, a, lo of a successful long-term relationship. Uh, frankly, as you were just saying, when your partner is pushing you uh, quickly to tie the knot, um, there, that's a sign that says, wait a minute, hold on here, uh, That that's one of those cute little red flags you have there uh, should be waving in your brain. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And don't find it charming. It's not charming. It's manipulative or could be manipulative. Yes, of course, there are dream moments when everything works out perfectly and people always trot that out. Oh, my aunt and my uncle met and they got married in three weeks. They've been together for 60 years. Know for sure that that is rare. That is rare. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this divorce rate that we have. And when you do take one trip around the sun together before you commit, and you may, I don't mean that you haven't committed to a monogamous relationship, because I certainly hope if you're having sex, you did. Sure. But you may, but before you commit to doing life together on a permanent basis, give yourself the time to experience things together. 
what if you have a difference of time? It could be something as, as, as annoying as your relationship to time. One person is always punctual. The other person is always late. Um, things that are resentful, things that will cause resentment, things that will build resentment, things that cause you to scratch your head and you don't know how to figure it out and fix it. So very important. So um, do you think people go into marriage these days? Because I've heard a little bit of this, Larry. Do you think people go into marriage these days saying, oh, well, if it doesn't work out, you can always get a divorce? Uh, particularly if they come from a family of divorce, yes, because they lived through it once before uh, or more, uh, then I, they assume they can do it as well. So I don't know if there's any hard data on it, but my gut tells me that uh, that kids who grow up in uh, through divorce are probably a little more inclined to do that themselves. Well, I think that's certainly one factor. And I think another is these days, there's a little more entitlement. Now, I would take a frivolous example. Sometimes I like to watch mindless television. So I'll watch that House Hunters program where people go out shopping for a house. And you watch people, and I'm sure they vet those people for the drama factor that they have. I mean, it's not just any average couple that goes on the show. But I am overwhelmed with the idea that they walk in and usually it's someone somewhere between 25 and 40 who will look at something and say oh well this just has to be completely gutted I wouldn't live in this I listened to one the other day and honest to goodness a 22 year old said there is no possible way that I will live without granite in my kitchen oh, right <laughs> so you know, we've got these these situations now, as I said, of course, it makes good TV if you get people who are selfish and self-centered. <laughs> but it, for me, it just gives me a notion of how entitled are people these days who believe that you're here to please me and that you should bend to my way. I heard a woman say on one of those programs the other day, she just leaned into the camera and she said, doesn't matter what he said. I always get my way. Well, okay. Again, it's TV. I get that. However, it is representative of a percentage of the population. And if a person in a marriage thinks that it doesn't matter what he or she says, I always get my way. I will find a way to get my way. We got a problem, right? Absolutely. There's no question. The, the, the hallmark of a solid relationship is compromised. The willingness to consider your partner, uh, maybe even ahead of you sometimes, uh, to uh, recognize their needs and so on. Uh, of course, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with Gottman's work, and, and as you know, you know one of the, he, the number one thing he talks about is this this discounting. You know, when when your partner makes a complaint. Uh, and so forth, and your response is, "Ah, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy." You know, now, totally dismissing. Uh, not only you're dismissing your partner's concern, but you're furthermore telling them that they don't. They didn't even know what they're talking about. Well, that's that's certainly not a good sign, and you're not on the road to a long-term relationship. Well, basically, you're telling them they don't matter. 
What, what I'm thinking matters. What you're thinking doesn't matter. I'm not curious about you. I'm not going to lean into you. And I'm definitely not planning to learn anything. <laughs> yep. You said it better than I did. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about better, but the thing is that if, if we don't realize these things, you know, if you're, if you're in a relationship and you're thinking, what's in it for me all the time? That is only one third of the equation. In my opinion, there are three entities in a relationship, two me's and one we. And it's like a stool. You need all three of them to make some stability. And sometimes you're going to have to give way to what's best for the we or the other me. And it's not because like, oh, well, I guess I'll do it. It's because I care I will do it. Exactly. And while we're talking about that, in addition, of course, to vetting our prospective mate, uh, we might want to take a good look at uh, their household as well. Because let's face it, where did they learn this stuff? And so we want to take a look at the teachers as well. So when you go to dinner at at your prospective in-law's house and you see one partner, (laughs) disabusing the other partner and so on, or discounting them, or whatever, uh, you know, those are some signs you want to be uh, rather watchful about. Oh, good point. Yes, because apples don't fall far from trees, even though they wish they could get away. <laughs> you know, I, I like that poster that says, you know, are, are you always living in the shade of your family tree? Right. Well, we are unless we consciously make a difference, consciously do the work to step away from any dysfunction in our family tree. But you take everybody home as part of the dating process. You get that opportunity to see, am I comfortable? Am I comfortable with the way people treat each other in that home? Am I comfortable with the way that they treated me? What kind of questions did they ask? No, it's not just a social experience. It is an opportunity to learn. So great point. I like that. And, you know, you were talking to me earlier about the fact that second marriages are even more likely to fail. Why is that? Well, that data is is definitely <clears throat> uh, clear. Yeah, in fact, uh, they, uh, they fail at about two out of three. So while first marriages... You know, basically, it's a 50-50 deal. Uh, second marriages are, are much worse. Basically, uh, well, there's a number of reasons, but basically, second marriages have all the issues of first marriages, plus now the added baggage of the first marriage. Uh, so, for example, money, as we know, is a huge issue in marriages. Well, now money's more complicated in the second marriage because now you have child support or or spousal maintenance and things along those kinds of lines. Uh, And since we were just talking about it, now you have two sets of in-laws to deal with. (laughs) You you still have your first in-laws, particularly if you've had children now, because those children are going to to want to have a relationship with their their original grandparents, but these children are also going, going to want to have a relationship with their new grandparents and so on. So they're all in the family as well. In fact, when you have that situation, you're, you're going to need uh, uh, almost a notebook to decide where you go for Thanksgiving. 
<laughs> I think the thing to do is go on vacation on Thanksgiving, <laughs> get those ones out of the way. Exactly. But, you know, you, you bring up a good point because when you double the variables each time, right? First marriages, there, there are two sets of variables, two humans. Now you've got four humans plus the children. So you have increased the number of potential variables and problems and issues and love and joy and all and functional relationships, which are great. So I think we could talk about relationships for a long time, but I really want to get your expertise on children and divorce. Because we may be really unhappy in a marriage, but we have to think about the children. You know, first of all, as we were saying earlier, and as you so wisely said, get some help. Try and do the very best you can so that you're showing the children a good model of relationship. But if you get to the place of divorce, now what you have to consider when there are children And I think there are some specific things because children and their brain formation and brain growth and social growth are at different stages. And sometimes if there's physical or sexual abuse or really, really serious things going on in emotional abuse, sometimes you just have to leave in the moment. But if you get the the opportunity to plan, do you think that there are times that are better in a child's life, different stages of growth that make it easier for them to to take divorce in in a healthier way? Or is it always the same kind of trauma? Well, it's traumatic regardless. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think, I, I believe that the, uh, the ages from about two to three to 10, 11 and so forth, are probably the most vulnerable times for kids. Uh, prior to that, uh, in, when they're, of course, in the, the, the childhood stage, uh, they, they obviously don't have a full understanding of what's going on, and they will more easily adapt to the new normal, whatever that is, following the divorce. Once you get into the pre-adolescent years, and of course into the teen years, uh, Clearly now they fully understand, uh, in fact, more so sometimes than parents would like. And, and while that is certainly bothersome, uh, they, they don't quite have that um, sense of abandonment, perhaps, to some degree, sure, uh, but not as acutely. Uh, they're, <clears throat> they're now, their self-concepts are a little better formed at that at that time, of course, there's still work to do, obviously. But uh, I believe they can manage uh, the uh, the dissolution better um, in those in those years. So, if you have to choose and you have the capacity to do that, it's basically early or late. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that two to 10, two to 11 period, because that's a long time to be in a nasty relationship. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes when we think about individuation happening at two or so, where the child finally says, me and my mommy are not the same person, and I can be a separate entity in another room, and and she won't go away. (laughs) We have some object constancy in that situation. Um, At that moment, when someone disappears from our life, we may or may not be able to accept it. The whole may just kind of close over and it may be all right. But on the other hand, a little child 
is kind of defining themselves by how much they're recognized and validated by two parents. And so that that's a big question. And of course, in my work, Larry, with people who have these toxic traits and patterns and cycles, the patterning that's happening while the child is getting all of these feeling messages because they don't have the intellectual development, they don't have the prefrontal and parietal lobe development to take it in on any other level. So they're like, am I okay? Do, do they like me? Will they come when I call them? Do they care when I cry? Do they feed me? You know, all of that kind of thing, primary importance to little people. Absolutely. And they're learning who they are by these people telling them who they are in the ways that they're treated. So when you think it's, it's sort of a, and you may not have an answer, but let's play with the idea. Do you think that there's some way of deciding, even when the kids are between 2 and 11 in that most vulnerable period, when it is the right moment to just say, oh, no, this can't go on? It just can't go on. No, We've done everything we can to get it together. It's not coming together. We're far too different. We live in different worlds. We're maybe not treating each other well. It's a poor model for the children. Where is that dividing point? Where is the pivot point when you say, okay, I've given it all the thought that I can, and obviously this is not healthy for the kids? Well, I think you just said it. Uh, I think the first... Uh, barometer would be the kids. Uh, how are they faring? I mean, if you're getting calls from the teacher on a regular basis that uh, Susie's breaking down in, in class, uh, or Billy's been acting up and, and bullying and things along those lines, and that wasn't happening uh, before, uh, those are certainly uh, red flags. Uh, of course, you deserve to be happy as well. Exactly. As you said, you know, two to 11 is nine years. Uh, you know, you don't deserve a nine-year uh, sentence of being uh, unloved and, and, and mistreated and, and so on. So if you're feeling the, uh, the disconnect and you can see it's not good for the kids and so forth, well, then you, you may have to do that. And in the end... Uh, that may be better for all concerned. Yeah, well, I had a parent ask me yesterday. She said, if I didn't have children, I'd be out of here in a heartbeat. What do I do? And my answer was, and this was a person who I'd never met before, so just asking this question. And, of course, I said, I have to learn a whole lot more about what's going on, who you are, who your partner is, how the children are behaving, what your children are like, you know, um, before I can answer that question. But she said, you know, do I have to stay until they're teenagers? And I said, no, there's no have to here at all. It's calibrating the amount of abuse, the model that the children are seeing on a regular basis, the feelings they're getting from both partners, and the fact that you deserve to have a moment when you say the better thing is to not be together for all concerned. Because the, she, this woman I was speaking with, was so clear. I don't like him. He's abusive. He's nasty. He's difficult. All of those things I don't want my children to see, but my children love him. Sure. How do I make that that decision? Well, and, and you, that, you've said that in a nutshell. Because remember, 
Uh, our kids are naive. Uh, they've not been around the block, so to speak. Uh, they haven't uh, studied how families are supposed to function. The only families they know are the ones in which they live. So they're learning. This is, this is their, their, their school ground, if you will. And so they're learning about relationships uh, and, and so on. And, and so uh, <clears throat> if you are concerned about what it is they're learning and what they're seeing and so forth, you're doing them a favor. Although, of course, they, they may not thank you at the moment, but mm -hmm. you are actually doing them a favor uh, by, by ending this dysfunctional relationship. I like that because it is doing them a favor, even though, you know, it's sort of like saying, no, you can't have the fourth ice cream cone. <laughs> you know, like the child wants it, the child wants it, the child thinks they should have it, but the adult says, no, three ice cream cones was too, too many. Now you're not having a fourth. Adult decision, adults looked at all of the situations. You're not going to sleep for a week as it is with the sugar. <laughs> so no. Well, I think what you're saying is you apply the same principle. At a certain point, the responsible, mature adult has to say, what is in the best interest of the well-being of the children? If you have a totally stressed out parent who is going crazy in a relationship while the other person's trying to have power over them all the time, are you a good parent? Can you really give the children what they need? Well, obviously the answer is no. And if you're in a home like that, the children are feeling the tension all the time too. So instead of being at you know a two out of 10 with sort of normal stress, everybody's at a four out of 10 before anybody opens their mouth. And we've got a problem there. That's certainly something to consider. So um, I think we've talked about quite a few things, but I'd like to hear what your main points are in your book. You know, love your kids more than you hate their the ex. <laughs> what? How do you do that? <laughs> how do you make sure you do that? Well, and that's a good point. Uh, that basically refers to once you've made the decision to uh, to separate and and divorce, uh, and it's it's certainly a, a difficult time. Uh, as you know, people get, get angry. You may not even be a hijackal, but when now, you know, someone you once loved has now rejected you and, and has separated from you, people get angry. And many times, unfortunately, they, uh, they want retribution. Uh, they, they want some revenge. Um, they want to upset that person as much as they're upset. And, and that's a dirty, ugly game. Uh, that they play, unfortunately. And of course, the, the terrible part about that is not only you know, does it add a lot more angst to the couple, but it, it puts the poor kids in a meat grinder. And mm -hmm. so uh, I guess my, my main point is, is that we parents have to remember they're still parents, whether they're divorced or divorcing or not. Uh, and what, what that means, in my view, is that we, we define a parent, I think, generally as someone who puts their needs secondary to those of the children. And that still applies even in a divorce situation. And despite the fact we, we may be angry and hurt and upset, and, and perhaps justifiably so, we can't take it out on our kids. Yes. Well, the thing about being an adult 
should you be one, is that you understand that you do not need instant gratification yourself. You learn that when the baby cried for the first time after it came home, you were tired, you were hungry, you were stressed, and yet the baby had to come first. So your instant gratification became subdued. You began to learn that you could wait half an hour. Then you have a bunch of toddlers or children of various ages, and you come home from work and you wanted to sit down. <laughs> but the children come running to you and they're excited to see you. You learn to put aside your need for instant gratification. So that's what I hear you talking about here. No matter how angry you are, upset, hurt, blindsided, betrayed you are, you still have to put the needs of the children first. And it's a very bad idea to badmouth the other parent, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And that, that, you know, there's a list of sins, if you will, that, uh, that parents unfortunately do uh, under these circumstances, sometimes knowingly and sometimes not, uh, and so on. Uh, but certainly uh, bad-mouthing the, uh, the other partner is, is, is up there for sure. Uh, I, I heard it once said that when you, you know, when you speak badly of your ex to your kids, you're actually besmirching 50% of their genes. I've heard that too. And I think it's a very valid point to remember each of our children is one half of each parent's genes. And so you're actually, as you said, besmirching the, that, but you're telling the child that part of you is no good. Right. And whether or not the child has that kind of cognitive function or not, they're going to feel it. You know, well, that's my daddy. That's my mommy. You know, how do, how do you speak about that in that way? And I have a couple more questions, but I just want to remind everyone I'm talking to Dr. Larry Waldman, and you can find him at topphoenixpsychologist.com. So he lives in Phoenix. You got that part. <laughs> topphoenixpsychologist.com. And that will all be in the show notes for you. If you happen to be out for a run right now, don't worry. You can come home and find it there. So in this thing about loving the kids more than you hate your ex, first of all, you have to focus on what is in the highest and best for the children, correct? Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. And then when the children come home, this is my bias, and I'd love to hear your thing on it. I teach my clients to have what I call transition time. The children come into a low-stress, low-activity environment when they're, they're coming home from the other parent. They have time to settle into the new environment or even go to a park. You know, I was dealing with one parent who she would pick the children up, and eventually she learned that she had a backpack for each child. And in there were snacks and drinks and coloring and balls and things. They would take that and they would go to the park for a half hour. So everybody just chilled because the worst thing you can do is interrogate the child after they come back from the other parent. <laughs> Absolutely. And again, here, that's, this is one of those things that may be kind of unknown, um, but you know, it, it starts off with, well, how, you know, how was your weekend with, dad, for example, uh, okay, well, and then, well, then you explore some more. And, and frankly, sometimes you may be looking for a problem, perhaps. Uh, and then the kid might say, oh, yeah, well, you know, dad got a new TV. and we New TV? What do you mean? How can he afford a new TV? With, you know, and, and, and next thing you know, the kid's going, ooh, ooh, 
I, I shouldn't have said that. And oh, and now the kid feels like uh, he's being interrogated or she's being interrogated. Um, I've had some cases where parents actually uh, use the kid sort of as a spy to kind of do uh, reconnaissance, you know, uh, let me know if there's anything new there and, and so on. Uh, but see, that puts the kid in an untenable spot. Of course, you know, we call that a loyalty squeeze. You know, the, who's the child going to be loyal to? Uh, what is it? What is he or she supposed to do? Do what you know, mom wants him to do or her to do, but she knows that's kind of unfair to dad. But on the, by the same token, if she doesn't, he or she doesn't do what mom now she's, now they're disloyal to mom, and so it's a no win. Absolutely, and that's just not fair on any level to the children. You know, speaking of the way things get set up, you know, in my world, dealing with toxic relationships, I'll tell you a little story. This mom who was had come across country to get away from a hijackal dad, and she had two children. One was just one and a half, and the other was five. And so one day she came in, and she could, her babysitter had bailed, and she had to bring the kids. So the five-year-old had an iPad and the little one sat on her knee or nearby and, you know, we were managing and she said to the, to the five-year-old, she said, you just sit outside the door here and we'll leave the door open a crack and you, you be on your iPad. So we won't be able to hear the iPad. You go out there. Well, this little five-year-old kept insinuating himself around the door and opening the door. Then, you know, his mom would say, no, just sit out there. And eventually he came all the way in and he's up to his mother. And he looks at me with what I call the hijackal smirk, like I am the smartest person in the world. And he says to me, I've been recording everything you've said. And I said, oh, show me your iPad. <laughs> so he showed it to me and I erased it. And I said, oh, tell me why you did that. My daddy gave me this iPad and he showed me how to do that. And I have to tell him everything that happens. Sure. Yeah, there you go. Five years old, learn to be a daddy spy, learn to surveil mom, wanted to bond with dad so greatly that he overruled the idea that that, you know, that wasn't a nice thing to do to mommy (laughs) because he wanted to bond with the same sex parent who's away and he's missing. And that's the kind of stuff that goes on, everybody. So know that this is out there. If you're with a toxic person, this is going to happen. Divorces do not come easily. Even if the toxic person, the hijack will discard you, don't worry. They'll be back. They'll either want to take you to court every 20 seconds for everything that you have. They will run out of supply out in the world and come back and apologize and love bomb you and say, I'm so sorry, I made the biggest mistake of my life. And as soon as you take them back, bam, situation's worse than it was before. So many things to learn. I want to thank you, Larry, for being my guest, for sharing all of this, and that everybody remember topphoenixpsychologist.com. He has other books. He has not just written this one book. He has written other books. Who's Raising Whom? Coping with Your Adolescent. How come I love him, but I can't live with him? (laughs) Too busy earning a living to make your fortune and overcoming your negotiate-a-phobia. 
<laughs> well, this has been really pleasant, and I hope you'll come back and be my guest in another six months or so, so we can talk at deeper levels again about other aspects of divorce. I'd love that. My guest today, Dr. Larry Waldman, topphoenixpsychologist.com. We're talking about things that really do happen in hijackal relationships, aren't we? I, can, I just know you're nodding your head because sure. this is all familiar, but you may think you went through it all alone and it only happened to you. No, you are not alone. It happens to many, many people all the time. So come on over to my membership program, Optimize Circles, completely off social media so you're safe. It's on my website. Go to my website, forrelationshiphelp.com, F-O-R, relationship, H-E-L-P.com. Click on the circles tab. Come on and join. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash save your sanity. You can pledge a dollar or five dollars a month to make sure that this stays available to you. You know, there's so many things to learn, especially when you're in a toxic relationship or were raised by a toxic person. And that's what Save Your Sanity is all about. I'm here to walk through this with you and to figure a few things out. So until we talk again, you know what I'm going to say, because I say it every single episode. Take very good care of yourself. Be very kind to yourself. And you know why? Because you're precious. And you matter. Talk soon. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights, some ideas and strategies to help you gain clarity and confidence for moving forward toward greater emotional health and safety. You deserve that, and so do your children. If you found value here and would like to support this podcast with a dollar or five each month, please do so at patreon.com slash save your sanity. Learn more about how to work with me via video conference, join my optimized circles, or subscribe to this podcast on my YouTube channel at my website, transformingrelationship.com. Talk soon.